I thought I might use um, the words of one of my favourite songs as our prayer um, before we uh, listen to God's word this afternoon. So please join me in prayer. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And by grace, we'll stand on your promises. And by faith, we'll walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Amen. Well, I must confess to you that uh, I'm very drawn to war stories. Um, not, you know, not stories that kind of turn war into some kind of Hollywood entertainment and, and glorify it, but authentic and true stories. And tales of war can be confronting, can't they, and, and shocking sometimes, but I must say I, I find them pretty compelling. I think it's partly that they feel like a bit of an antidote to this modern life that sometimes feels so soft and comfortable and juvenile, doesn't it? There's something inspirational about uh, seeing courage and bravery and loyalty in action. Battle seems to become this arena in which loyalty is displayed. In the moment of greatest danger, uh, ordinary men sometimes seem to display extraordinary loyalty and allegiance to their companions. I remember um, listening to a podcast recently about a US Marine who, who dived on a live grenade and covered it with his helmet um, to save, save his crew. Um, extraordinary courage. They later said that he was, in the weeks leading up to that, he died, um, he was, he was practising that move, they said. I mean, it's incredible self-sacrifice. Uh, I think deep down, part of that's what really draws me to these stories, this idea of that kind of loyal friendship. You know, a band of brothers ready to face hardship together. I don't know about you, but I kind of feel that that kind of loyal friendship uh, is a bit rare today. But we all know it's a precious thing, don't we? Uh, in, in all kinds of relationships, in, in uh, marriages or between siblings or friendships, uh, loyalty, allegiance is something to treasure. Do you long to have relationships that are marked by that kind of loyal allegiance? Does your relationship with Christ ever feel marked by that kind of loyalty? Do you wish that it did? Do you wish that it did? Uh, In today's passage, we see that kind of loving allegiance. And we also see its opposite, envious and deceptive disloyalty. And the man at the centre of it all is David. As Greg said, we're at a a really interesting point in 1 Samuel here because uh, we're at the the transition of leadership. So in chapter 16, uh, the Lord has rejected Saul as king. And Samuel, you'll remember from last week, anoints David as the Lord's chosen king. But it's not a neat transition. Uh, It's not a quick shift from Saul to David as king And in fact, for David, there's still a very long way to go before he's fully installed as leader over all of Israel. But his reputation is growing at at this point. 
Uh, He's becoming quite well known. In these chapters, it's those who are closest to David who are most in focus. And it's two of those people, Saul and Jonathan, that we'll look at today. We'll begin with Saul, King Saul. Uh, There's really only time to kind of give you a brief survey here, but keep your Bibles open and uh, we'll pick up some of the highlights of Saul's interactions with David. And as we look at his character, uh, you'll see that it's, it's kind of a foil, a contrast to the character of Jonathan that we'll look at next. Uh, well, initially, after David defeats Goliath, it seems that Saul is actually pretty happy to keep him around, which you can understand. He's a military hero. And in verse 5 of chapter 18, uh, he sets David over his army. But things change pretty quickly. One day, Israel's army is coming back uh, from battle, coming back home, and the women of Israel come out into the streets to celebrate, to welcome home this returning army, Uh, and they're singing and dancing, and one of their songs goes like this, verse 7. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Now, this song isn't necessarily meant to be an insult to Saul. So Hebrew poetry does commonly use this sort of um, parallel line structure where it will intensify a single idea. So it it could be simply that what what they're saying is Saul and David have both killed a lot of our enemies. That's a good thing. But maybe it is meant to slightly elevate David. And in any case, that's how Saul interprets it. A bit paranoid, perhaps. Uh, He doesn't like it. He's not happy. Verse 8 there, you'll see, Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Well, we see here the beginnings of Saul's disloyalty to David. And what does it come down to, really? It's envy isn't it? Saul sees David's success in battle. He sees other people celebrating that success. Uh, And rather than joining them in that celebration, he sees only a threat to his own position and power and reputation. Uh, If you know this story, if you've read it before, you'll know that things actually escalate pretty quickly from this point. Uh, It begins with an attack in private. Verse 11, Saul takes a spear and twice he hurls it at David, but David escapes. Next, Saul tries some kind of political manoeuvring. Verse 13, he kind of punishes David by removing him from his privileged position in the, in the king's inner court and he demotes him in military rank. Uh, that doesn't work. He seems to become more calculating and a bit more deceptive. Verse 17, he promises his oldest daughter to David in marriage. Um, Sounds generous, doesn't it? But what he's actually trying to do uh, is to make David feel obliged now to fight Saul's battles for him uh, and in doing so to make him more likely to be killed on the front lines. Uh, Saul just wants the Philistines basically to do his dirty work for him. Then, when Saul's other daughter, Michal, falls in love with David, Saul says to David, don't worry, the only bride price I require 
is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Interesting. <laughs> of course, it's not really a hundred Philistine foreskins Saul is after. What he wants is 100 chances for David to get defeated by a Philistine. Well, David, once again, the Lord is on his side, and he and his men kill 200 Philistines and bring back the proof. Talk about an unwanted gift. I mean, (laughs) what do you do with that? What do you do? Saul's tactics, you can see, have just become desperate. He seems driven mad by this compulsion to get David off the scene at any cost. He doesn't even hesitate to use his own daughters in his scheming. It's horrific. Uh, Later on in another outburst, another hot-headed outburst, Saul tries again to impale David with a spear, but David escapes again. So Saul sends men to David's house to murder him. Um, and we didn't read this part, but if you, if you go back and read it later, you'll see that with, a, with some help from his wife, Michal, now David escapes again with a clever, clever little trick, the old idol in the bed with goat hair trick. Works every time, apparently. It's crazy, isn't it? Saul is just driven mad. Uh, and at the root of it all is a hateful and a fearful envy. Do you see that? Saul's disloyalty is not not calmly rational. It wells up out of a heart filled with jealousy. Ultimately, I think we can say this, he is disloyal because he does not love God's king. Saul, well, he's a tragic figure in these chapters, isn't he? At At a merely human level, his treatment of David is just brutal and relentless. Uh, If you want to get inside David's head and and understand how he was feeling at this moment, uh, read Psalm 59 later on. Ultimately, Saul, I think, is a, a really ugly example of the way that all sinful people respond to God's rule and his plans. And we were once the same, weren't we? But against that very dark backdrop, One man stands out here. It's Saul's son, Jonathan. And I'm sure you'll agree that there could not be a bigger contrast, could there? Let's read, uh, let's go back to the start of chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. It's this kind of uh, intensely affectionate scene there, isn't it? Um, But don't forget that these two men are warriors, you know. They're not sensitive New Age guys here. Uh, They've both killed enemies in in violent hand-to-hand combat. They're courageous, battle-hardened men of war, which I think makes their friendship and this scene all the more moving, really. Uh, The language in the original here is strong. Literally, the soul of Jonathan bound itself to the soul of David. 
That is the kind of brotherhood that is forged in the furnace of battle, isn't it? It's the kind of bond shared by two men who find their strength in the Lord. Uh, And in this deeply symbolic gesture, Jonathan, he takes off his royal robe and his armour and his weapons and he hands them over to David. One writer describes it like this. Jonathan, the king's son, stands humbly in his undergarments while the shepherd boy dons the prince's robe and armament. It's a powerful, symbolic moment of allegiance to a new king. And for Jonathan, don't forget, this was no small thing. Jonathan was the son of Saul, don't forget. He was therefore heir. He was the king-in-waiting. The throne was his to take. These two young warriors should have been bitter rivals. And so for Jonathan to recognise David as God's king was to do nothing less than to surrender his own right to rule. And as he hands over his robe and his weapons, what he is handing over is a lifetime of kingship, giving it all away. And what's more, by his actions, Jonathan puts himself dangerously at odds with his violent father, doesn't he? It begins in chapter 9. Let's read from uh, verse 1 there. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. So you see that Jonathan, he speaks up. He defends David despite the risk, despite the very real risk. Uh, In chapter 20, again, which we read part of earlier, Jonathan once more comes to David's defense and his rescue. He hatches this plan to find out if Saul still harbours resentment towards David uh, and he comes up with this clever little scheme uh, to let David know the outcome. You know, I'll shoot these arrows and if I say they're this side, then it's safe to come back. If I say they've gone too far, then run for your life. Uh, Where Saul used his weapon of war, a spear, to attack David, Jonathan uses his weapon of war, a bow and arrows, to defend David, to serve him. And the plan works, but it's not without risk for Jonathan. And when he confronts his father, Saul's anger is kindled. And driven mad, it seems, with rage and envy, Saul craves nothing more than another chance to plunge his spear into David. Yet Jonathan, in verse 32 there, he stands boldly and he says to his father, He's done nothing wrong. Well, Saul at this just explodes in fury and just as he had hurled his spear at David, he hurls his spear now at his very own son. Do you see the contrast between these men? It's not hard to see, is it? It's not hard to see. For for Saul, his disloyalty to David arose out of his hatred. 
It arose from his jealous refusal to accept David as king. For Jonathan, his devotion, his loyalty to David arose from where? From his love for David. That loyal love is just unmistakable in these chapters, isn't it? For both Saul and for Jonathan, their response to David was an outward manifestation of a heart-level attitude. Neither man here is simply cold or calculating as they respond to this new king. They feel deep emotion, either deep love or deep hatred, and their actions flow out of that. I think it would be a shame if we didn't just stop briefly here to learn from Jonathan and David's friendship, if we could. I'm sure you'll agree it's one of the most striking friendships in all of the Bible. Now, some of it does feel a bit foreign to us, doesn't it, given the cultural differences, but I reckon even with a gap of several thousand years here, we can still see in Jonathan and David a great example of loyal companionship. Friendship like this, I think, transcends culture. J.C. Ryle, who's an English bishop in the 1800s, said this rather quaintly, the world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. It's kind of nice, isn't it? Uh, Christian author C.S. Lewis said this. He said, To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. I think C.S. Lewis was right. I mean, he was writing quite some time ago now. I think it's only uh, truer today. I think for many of us, the approach we take to friendship is passive. There's often very little intentional effort. And so I wonder if we're missing out on one of God's great gifts, particularly the men. If I could speak to you for a moment. Strong male friendship is a rare commodity these days, isn't it? And strong Christian male friendship is no exception. So I just kind of want to say to you, men, in this example, just be reminded of what strong, robust, masculine, loyal friendship can really look like. Uh, The key to their friendship, I think, is captured a bit later in chapter 23, verse 16, where we read this. Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Literally, it says Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. Men, do you have friendships like that? Let me say, if you find a Christian brother whose aim is to strengthen you in the Lord, invest in that friendship and be that kind of friend to others. I wonder what kind of spiritual health and vitality we would see in this church if we all invested in that kind of loyal friendship and loyal companionship. 
so much for that brief diversion. I want to turn now to the great king who David foreshadowed. And as we think about the character of Jonathan, who was loyal to God's chosen king, I want to ask you this. Are you loyal to Christ, your king? To become a disciple of Jesus is to be like Jonathan when he humbly took off his princely robe and surrendered it to David. We often forget this, I think. To to be a disciple of Jesus is more than just agreeing to a certain set of beliefs. It's more than just acting according to a certain set of moral principles. It's more than just attending a certain set of weekly church events. It is ultimately allegiance. Allegiance to a person. Allegiance to Christ himself. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And what this means is that to be a follower of Jesus is to be like Jonathan in the way that he accepts the cost. Jonathan's allegiance to David cost him his place on the throne and it cost him the approval of his father. And for the Christian... Loyalty to Christ will look the same. Now, maybe some of you do have a husband or a wife who doesn't share your loyalty to Jesus, uh, and it can put you at odds with them. Maybe some of you have boldly followed Christ despite parents or colleagues or friends who've seen that as a foolish decision. Uh, For some Christians in other parts of the world, loyalty to Christ looks like a burned body, or a beheaded corpse. Loyalty to Jesus is is not a joke, is it? It's not a light thing. Church, we have in Jonathan a great example of what costly allegiance to Christ looks like. But if we stopped there, I don't think we would have learned all that we could learn from Jonathan and David. Uh, if, I, if I stopped here, I don't think I would have preached the gospel to you because what we would have failed to grasp is this, that in this story, the loyal love and allegiance goes in both directions. Put yourself in David's shoes for a moment. Uh, he'd be right to keep this rival to the throne at a distance, wouldn't he? And yet this king-in-waiting uh, is willing to call Jonathan a friend. When they're forced to part ways later on, listen to what happens. This is from uh, chapter 20, verse 41. David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But listen to this interesting detail. David wept the most. You see, Jonathan's loyalty to David was not loyalty to a cold and distant king. Theirs was a bond of mutual friendship, mutual devotion and allegiance. And so for Jonathan, loyalty to David wasn't ultimately loss, was it? Despite how costly it looked. No, it was gain 
In his allegiance to David, he gained a great and loyal companion, a companion who was God's chosen king. And church, what we see in Jesus is the clearest possible proof of God's steadfast, loyal, unwavering love towards us. The God of the heavens enters our world and as a man, he lays down his life for the church. And what Jesus said to his disciples, I think is is true for us too. This is from John 15. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Here's what we need to keep saying, I think, that it is a joyful thing to pledge our allegiance to the friend of sinners who has laid down his life for us. Our loyalty is a response to his loyal love. Why was Jonathan loyal to David? Well, ultimately, it's because Jonathan loved him. And for us, the essence of our loyalty to Jesus is this, that we love him for what he's done for us. Writing to Christians, Peter uh, says this about Christ. Very simply, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just say this. Please don't stay like Saul, unwilling to honour Christ as king. It's a dangerous position to take. There's nothing better you could do today than to take off that robe that says, I am king, and to hand it all humbly to Christ. I urge you to do that today. Bow the knee to the one who will prove himself to be a faithful friend to you. And Christian, let me encourage you to walk with Christ as your loyal companion. He will prove himself to be a steadfast friend. Pledge your allegiance to Christ and he will prove himself a thousand times over to be worthy of your allegiance. I confess that sometimes I don't like the kind of cheap ways we sometimes talk about having a relationship with God. You know, it can all start to sound a little bit warm and fuzzy, like Jesus is my buddy or God's this cosmic counsellor that I go to when I'm lonely and upset. But, you know, to think of Christ, to really think of Christ in all his transcendent glory, and then to think that this Christ has sacrificed himself in order that he might become my friend and my brother. Well, that kind of carries some weight, I think. There's something awesome about that. And when he proves his faithfulness, as he does time and time again, I think we'll find that we are eager to be loyal to him. To illustrate that connection, let me take you to the town of Smyrna in modern-day Turkey, but we're going back to the year 155 AD. Uh, And an old man stands there. He's held captive 
He's waiting to be burned alive. His name is Polycarp. He's a leader of the church. And as this man, as this frail old man approaches his execution, he's given a chance by his captors to blaspheme Christ, to deny Christ and be freed. His freedom is offered to him. So listen to his answer, and what I want you to see is the connection between his awareness of Christ's loyalty to him and consequently his steadfast loyalty to Christ. Facing death, Polycarp said this. He said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I now then blaspheme my King and Saviour. 86 years I've served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I now then blaspheme my King and Saviour? Church, just as you cultivate friendships that will strengthen you in the Lord, also cultivate your fellowship with that greatest of all friends, the Lord himself. No wonder the hymn writer, John Newton, that repentant slave trader, wrote this. He said, One there is above all others, well deserves the name of friend. His is love beyond a brother's, costly, free, and knows no end. They who once his kindness prove, find it everlasting love. 